microbe male has made its journey 365 days around the sun, and we are very excited to be celebrating our first birthday with you, our listeners. In the past 12 months, we have released 24 episodes of unique content, had more than 5,500 downloads, and we have gathered listeners from more than 32 countries all over the world. We are celebrating the year that was. I'm sure you noticed the lovely new intro music. Pop me a message on social media and let me know if you like the old track or the new one. We are also celebrating by spending a little time summarizing some of the content we've released and hope that those of you who have not had a chance to listen to some of these episodes will be able to go back and listen. Before we start, remember that we have a mailing list which you can sign up to join on the Microbe Mail website. Emails are only sent out when new content is available, either in the form of a new episode or a new storyboard based on a released episode. These storyboards make for a great pocket summary. So this is a great way to get access to them. Microbe Mail is also active on social media, so follow on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. We'd love for you to share the germy love that is Microbe Mail with anyone in your network who would benefit from this content. The content covered in the past year falls into distinct pockets or themes. I'll go through here a snippet of what we've been up to this past year based on eight big themes. The themes were lab-related, infection prevention and control, clinical syndromes, diagnostics, TB, pathogens, mythbusters, and antimicrobials. Over the next two episodes, we're going to be going through quick little snippets and summaries of these themes. So let's start with the clinical syndromes. Episode 7 with Dr. Michelle Fenter covered the diagnosis and management of Staphylococcus aureus bacteremia. The episode was loaded with important concepts. One of these was about looking for the underlying site from which the Staph aureus bloodstream infection originated. Listen to one of the points Michelle made to this question. Definitely not. There are always two questions in infectious diseases. How did it get there and where else did it get to? If there is a Staphylococcus aureus bacteremia, then there is a reason it is there. Keep asking yourself how this organism got into the bloodstream. The potential source should always be sought. Remember always that the most common risk for Staph aureus bacteremia is an IV line, which should always be removed. In fact, not removing the inciting IV line has been shown to be the strongest independent risk factor for the relapse of Staph aureus bacteremia. Similarly, removing other foreign bodies such as prosthetic valves, joints, and pacemakers also improve outcomes. In short, find that source and get it out ASAP if possible. Time for another shout out to a different microbe mail episode, the wonderful episode by Professor Guy Richards, Source Searching 101 and that useful mnemonic E-Big Laws. Up to a quarter of Staph aureus bacteremia cases, however, do not have an obvious source. The second question, where else did it get to, should never be forgotten. Bear in mind that Staph aureus in the bloodstream gets around and metastasizes to many different sites. The first sites we think about are the heart valves, bones, including intervertebral discs, and joints. But remember that this list is where we start. The looking may not end there, and you may have to examine obscure places like the epidural space and other intra-abdominal sites like the kidneys, just to name a few. Depending on your clinical suspicion of these possible deep-seated complications, you may need to do other investigations, like a spine MRI. 
You may also need these further investigations to localize sources or complications that may be amenable to aspiration, such as an infected joint. If your patient has Staph aureus bacteremia that has resulted in a deep-seated infection, such as an endocarditis or vertebral osteomyelitis, the risk of relapse is high if the duration of treatment is insufficient. This is why it is so important to fully appreciate the extent of infection when it comes to Staph aureus bacteremia in ensuring good outcomes for your patients. Keep asking where else the Staph aureus has settled, especially in cases where your patient is just not responding clinically to appropriate therapy. And just to reiterate again, in Staph aureus bacteremia, source control, whatever that source may be, is imperative. In episode 9, I spoke to Dr. Erica Shaddock about tips and tricks in managing community-acquired pneumonia. One of the most important and crucial points raised by Erica is that community-acquired pneumonia is only one of many differentials in someone presenting with cough. She raised the importance of looking for other causes and making sure to follow the diagnostic criteria for community-acquired pneumonia. Thanks for the question. I think it's very important, um, probably with any disease, but especially with community-acquired pneumonia, that when you are approaching the patient, you always ask yourself, what could this be other than community-acquired pneumonia, to make sure that you don't miss um, a a diagnosis. And, And whilst these are usually things with acute cough and dyspnea, there are many illnesses that have cough and dyspnea as their presenting complaints. And you don't want to miss a lung cancer or heart failure or COPD, for instance. So always just keep an open mind. When it comes to the most um, obvious um, condition that would be confused with community-acquired pneumonia, we're probably talking about acute bronchitis. And the reason that it's so important to differentiate between the two is acute bronchitis is usually a viral, is a viral illness and therefore does not need antibiotics. So from a stewardship point of view, you don't want to be given unnecessary antibiotics. So when we do clinical studies, we have quite set criteria for diagnosing community-acquired pneumonia. We'll discuss these now. Um, And these are ones that they use in clinical trials, so not necessarily something we're going to use in our daily practice, but it's, it's a good place to start. So for to make an official diagnosis of community-acquired pneumonia, you need the presence of all three of the following. So firstly, um, signs and symptoms. So you need two of the following, cough, dyspnea, a pleuritic chest pain, uh, tachypnea, maybe a respiratory rate of greater than 30, hypoxia, um, or a PAO2 of less than 60, and then auscultatory findings of pneumonia, crackles, um, decreased breath sounds, um, dullness on percussion, etc. Then you need a new or an increased infiltrate on a chest x-ray or a CT scan. And lastly, you need either a very high or very low temperature or a high or very low white cell count. So you need all three of those criteria to diagnose um, community-acquired pneumonia. Now, if we were to compare this to acute bronchitis, which importantly is usually a self-limiting um, inflammation of the large airways, um, you would still have often cough and dyspnea and this cough and dyspnea episode usually occurs seasonally these are usually occurring in autumn or winter Um, and these patients can cough for on average about five days but it can be up to four weeks and patients need to be reminded of this if if you do diagnose acute bronchitis Um, patients could even have lung function changes with this acute bronchitis but it, it doesn't mean that it needs antibiotics so what is important is that these patients usually are missing um, the bedside signs of a 
inflammatory response. So they usually have no fever, no tachycardia, no tachypnea. And you can feel relatively comfortable if your patient is missing those signs, but has cough and dyspnea. And if you have done a chest x-ray, a clear chest x-ray, but you don't necessarily need that, that the patient rather has an acute bronchitis rather than a community-acquired pneumonia. There's more to this answer than I've inserted here, so make sure you go back to episode 9 to get the full story. In episode 20, Molebochen Kolojane explained the ins and outs of catheter-related bloodstream infection. And one of the concepts we as microbiologists can't overemphasize is the importance of appropriate blood culture collection to make the diagnosis of catheter-related bloodstream infections. Molebochen describes it really well here. So, I mean, firstly, when we consider a lab diagnosis of catheter-related bloodstream infection, as a microbiologist, we require a positive culture from blood taken from a peripheral site and a clear evidence that the catheter is the source. Mm. This is in addition to the clinical manifestation of infection and the absence of apparent source of bloodstream infection. So we look at the differential time to positivity, whereby a non-quantitative blood culture taken from the central venous Mm. catheter becomes positive at least two hours earlier than the peripheral blood culture. And in this case, this will be a line-sparing technique for the diagnosis of catheter-related bloodstream infection. And when the line is removed or the line removal diagnostic technique, we look at a positive semi-quantitative catheter tip culture. So in the lab, we would have looked for more than 15 colony forming units of the actual organism. Mm. And this will be with the same organism, species and antibiogram isolated from a catheter segment and the peripheral blood culture. So we will pair the the central line with your blood culture. Hence, you will see or you will hear in the ward rounds, we usually ask if they say there was um, organism culture on a central venous catheter, we ask, was there a peripheral culture collected when the central venous catheter is removed? Because we do need to compare or pair those two together. In our clinical content, we also looked at a very important patient population, the pregnant woman and spoke about management of infections during pregnancy. For example, the treatment of a PV discharge differs in pregnancy, as explained by Professor Shastra Bura and Dr. Jared Zamparini. So I think the most important thing, number one, is to have a diagnosis. I think the focus must be on the mom initially, because a healthy mom means a healthy baby. But there are different nuances that we need to be cognizant of, and a lot of the treatment that you would treat with the PV discharge or a UTI can have teratogenic effects on the unborn baby. And so, for example, uh, aminoglycosides, we try not to give in pregnancy unless it's uh, crucial and the mom is in multi-organ failure. Then this needs to be a multidisciplinary team in terms of making decisions as to whether we would deliver baby before administering aminoglycoside. And this is because it causes renal abnormalities in the fetus, which can be quite detrimental, often leading to a whole host um, of complications once the baby is born. And ultimately, if that renal system does not get a chance to mature in utero, these babies can be affected with severe uh, oligohydramniosis, and that can also lead to uh, pulmonary hyperplasias in these babies that subsequently die in utero. Tetracyclines, which we would use, for example, doxycycline for a PV discharge in any uh, reproductive patient that was not pregnant, 
can cause discoloration of both bones and teeth. And this can be um, also lead to very weak bones and teeth uh, in the fetus. And we may not see that evidently at birth, but as the child begins to grow, because it's been exposed to a tetracycline, that maturation of cartilage, bones, and teeth can become quite a significant impairment to these babies. Augmentin is something that's easily available at our hospital, and it's not something that needs motivation for. But I think within the pregnancy population, we really need to be cognizant that those mothers in their third trimester, especially those that are more than 34 weeks pregnant, administering the clavulinic acid, which is a component of the augmentin, can cause necrotizing enterocolitis in the newborn baby. And there have been a landmark trials that we follow known as the Oracles 1 and 2 that looked at a whole host of antibiotics in terms of what would be the most benefit to patients who presented in preterm labor or those who were presented with preterm rupture of membranes and found that the azithromycin group uh, and the macrolides had better um, <clears throat> benefit to the baby in utero. And so we try not to give augmentin in the third trimester. However, if you can anticipate that this baby is not going to be delivered within a week and the sensitivity of the culture that has been uh, proven to uh, be treatable by the augmentin, this can be something that can be discussed with the fetal medicine team. Mm. And so I think we must be cognizant of that because it seems like it's so simple. If a patient's not allergic to penicillin, then uh, augmentin having more power over your other penicillins would be of benefit but actually to the unborn baby, it can be uh, quite detrimental. detrimental. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think to, to contrast what Shastra is saying is the, the most recent Embrace report from the UK, which is their maternal mortality reporting, mm -hmm. um, has a really good point. I actually have this post up in my office, um, which is it says treat women who may become pregnant, are pregnant, or have recently been pregnant, the same as a non-pregnant person, unless there's a very good reason not to. And I really like this because it highlights that pregnancy shouldn't scare you to an extent. You just need to avoid those really teratogenic medicines because essentially if there isn't a mom, there isn't a baby. Sure. So you need to weigh up the probably minor risks of giving a certain antibiotic with the real benefit of treating, of treating an infection. So, I mean, having said that, we do know that the antibiotics Shastra has mentioned are problematic and they usually are alternatives. But if you have no choice, you have to weigh up that risk-benefit um, of the benefit of treating mom versus the risk to the baby. Last on the clinical front, probably one of the most underrated episodes on Microbe Mail is episode five, Source Searching 101. In this episode, Professor Guy Richards talked me through the mnemonic he uses and teaches to look for a source of sepsis. The mnemonic is E Big Laws, and these are the components included. Sure, so I call it E Big Laws. We added the E a little bit later, but E means endocarditis. So that would often mean that you would then investigate that by means of uh, ultrasonography. And this could either be transesophageal ultrasonography or it could be direct transthoracic ultrasonography. But it is something we must always consider. The B would be bladder. And obviously, you would investigate that in terms of evaluating the uh, the nature of the urine and in terms of cells, etc., but most importantly, the culture. Uh, then I would be IV lines, and any IV lines obviously are a source of infection and unfortunately are often placed with insufficient care with regard 
to sterility of the procedure, uh, et cetera. And there, in terms of the diagnosis, we will be looking at culturing through that line. If you leave it in situ, you, you would culture through the line and you would also culture from a peripheral line. And if, in fact, the culture came up positive at least two hours before that from the peripheral line, it would indicate that that was an infected catheter. The problem from that point of view, of course, is that the infection might be on the outside of the catheter and you don't always pick them up by that technique. So usually we have to remove them if it's a suspicion and then culture them uh, in a very specific manner as well. The G would be gut. And there we are concerned with uh, things like um, CDI, Clostridioides uh, difficile. Um, and there we would obviously be sending the stool off for a test for both the toxin and for the antigen of uh, the organism itself. So we could identify whether it was present and then we would identify whether, in fact, the toxin was being produced. Um, other organisms patients could come in with would be things like Salmonella and Shigella and uh, Yersinia, uh, et cetera, which all could make people extremely ill. One other that we think about there is Salmonella paratyphi, and that is particularly in our patients who are HIV positive, and they often have bacteremic Salmonella in relation to their cultures uh, as well. The L would be lung, and there the most important thing would be that there has been a decline in oxygenation that is associated with a new infiltrate on the chest X-ray and usually also an increase in secretions or that the secretions have become more purulent. Uh, and in that setting, the most important one for us, in fact, is the new infiltrate. This probably is one which is overdiagnosed. So that very often people will, uh, merely because a patient is ventilated, will suspect that if, in fact, biomarkers are rising, that it must be coming from the lung, but it probably isn't from there. And there are many other sites as well. And one of those is the next letter, which is A, which is uh, the A of, of laws, and that would be abdomen, and that mostly is post-surgical. Uh, and if, in fact, the patient becomes or shows signs of sepsis or inflammation after a surgical procedure, that is the usual site, the usual origin, even though people will often deny that that is likely to be it. It usually is the site, and a relook becomes mandatory, not just necessarily a CT scan. Um, it's not always post-surgical, and sometimes patients do develop a calculus cholecystitis, or they may develop even an appendicitis or diverticulitis or something else that is unrelated to the primary reason for the admission to ICU, uh, or even ischemic bowel. And with ischemic bowel, there can be translocation of organisms occurring as well. The W then would be wound sepsis. And that would require evaluation and sometimes removal of some of the sutures to see whether, in fact, there, there is pus uh, in the wound and if there's a, a spreading cellulitis as well. And S would be skin and soft tissue. And there we look at drip site cellulitis, particularly peripheral lines. Often people think that peripheral lines are not dangerous uh, and that only the central lines are, in fact, dangerous. But there are probably more 
bacteremic events that occur from peripheral lines overall, only because they are placed so much more frequently than central lines, both in the wards and in the ICU um, overall. The other uh, site then would be bed sores, and that's a frequent source of uh, bacteremias in the, uh, in the ICU or in the wards themselves. And the other one, which occasionally is a problem, is sinuses. And that is particularly if one has placed ET tubes into the sinus or into the nose, uh, or you've got feeding tubes in the nose, then there is a risk also for um, infection in the sinuses themselves. And obviously, identification there would be in relation to imaging of the sinuses um, as well. While we are talking about these clinical syndromes, we may as well talk TB here as well. We had a two-part series in episode 14 and 15. Episode 14 focused on detangling diagnostics, and episode 15 focused on multidrug-resistant TB management. Dr. Nina von Knorren explained some really important tips for submitting specimens to the laboratory for TB diagnostic testing. Um, so uh, the first point should be to follow your national testing algorithm. Yeah. Um, so here we have one for drug-susceptible TB and drug-resistant TB. And these algorithms, algorithms they will uh, detail which tests should be requested when, and uh, they reduce the amount of unnecessary and incorrect test requests and also help to avoid uh, duplication. So the amount and quality of the sample is important. Each test requires a minimum volume. So for gene expert, the minimum is one mil, ideally more, mm-hmm. um, but one mil would be the minimum. For culture and further processing, a minimum of two mil is required, mm-hmm. ideally three or more. The problem is the smaller the amount of specimen, the more it becomes diluted once we add our reagents, and then it reduces the chances of detecting mycobacteria, if there are any. Um, Sometimes we also receive empty containers, so always important to check if there's actually (laughs) something in it. In terms of quality, um, if a sputum sample, uh, for example, consists of saliva, this can affect the ability to detect possible TB, so the patient should be told how to produce a good quality sample. And then once you have the sample, it should be sent to the laboratory as quickly as possible, ideally on ice, and that is to avoid overgrowth of any normal flora that is in the sample. Um, it's also important to try and avoid specimen rejections due to leakage, so just make sure that the lid is tightly closed. We don't process any leaking specimen. Correct. And then in terms of extrapulmonary samples like tissue for culture, um, that shouldn't be sent in a fixative um, as we would send it for histopathology. Otherwise, the mycobacteria will be killed off and won't grow. Mm-hmm. There are specific containers for FNAs. Um, fluid samples can be sent in sterile containers. And in episode 15, Dr. Sarah Stacy explained, along with a number of important treatment concepts, the definitions of multidrug resistant, pre-XDR, and XDR-TB. Um, so this dates from a couple of years ago, and the definition of MDR-TB um, remains the same. So if the organism is resistant to rifampicin and isoniazid, then it's multidrug resistant. Okay. But the distinction between rifampicin-resistant TB and MDR-TB um, is for the most part academic because the treatment is, is very similar for both, right. if not identical, in fact. Uh, the definitions for pre-XDR and XDR have changed recently because it no longer makes sense to include resistance to an injectable agent in the definitions when we don't use them routinely anymore. Right. 
So the definitions are these. Pre-XTRTB is rifampicin-resistant or MDRTB. That's also resistant to any fluoroquinolone. Okay. XDRTB is rifampicin-resistant or MDRTB. That's also resistant to any fluoroquinolone and at least one other group A drug. And the group A drugs are essentially nezolid and bedaquilin. We spent some time talking about the laboratory and how we can improve the interface between the clinician and the laboratory. Our very first episode released was entitled Bridging the Gap, which focused on the mutual understanding that the patient ultimately should benefit from the interaction between clinicians and laboratory through the clinical specimen. Some of the important things to note from Dr. Cassandra Reddy and Dr. Lyle Murray in this episode include these. Firstly, it would be nice to, uh, at least for our junior, junior staff, to be able to um, give them some teaching, some, some basic guidelines as to how to collect samples correctly. I mean, this can be done quite simply with like small uh, a leaflet of, um, that's easy to read, a few kind of steps as to how to do a basic blood culture, how to collect a midstream urine, uh, what type of sputum samples we should be collecting. I think that, that would be easy and just... And, and a quite simple thing to do because I think, like you said, some of this is already included in a in a handbook, but it's may, maybe not all that accessible to, to the clinicians. But more importantly, I think, would be for us to extend um, our ward rounds uh, to microbiologists. So the microbiologists, like we do some, we have done in the past, come and join us on some of the ward rounds in the ward and discuss the microbiological issues with each of the pa- that with each of the patients in the ward. But also, almost more importantly, I think, because I think we generally know less about the lab environment than our microbiologists know about the ward, would be to bring clinicians to the lab and to show them some of the, the plates, to show them um, how the samples are analyzed and also just to, I can imagine showing people the number of um, CNSs that you're culturing um, and how much time that takes for, for the microbiological team and how basically improving taking samples, blood cultures, for example, would, would reduce all that kind of wasted effort, um, but just by, by taking samples correctly. So that, that those would be my suggestions. Those are great, Lyle. I definitely think the bench bedside ward round is an excellent idea. Cassie, any tips from your side? Uh, Yes, Lyle, I thought there were fantastic suggestions as well. I agree with you completely. I mean, we've made reference to the fact that labs have handbooks, but they definitely can be made in a more user-friendly way because, after all, we want the users to actually access them. Um, But I think a key take-home message from all of this, for me at least, Um, is about communication. And communication is something that comes up in several contexts, but it's a a very easy way, really, to bridge the gap. Um, So in the past, I know the view of microbiologists and pathologists used to be that they were these people who didn't really understand clinical medicine, who were very happy to be tucked away somewhere in the hospital, not having clinical contact. But that is something that's changing rapidly. I mean, most most of the pathologists and the microbiologists that I know are enthusiastic and engaged individuals, and we actually want that clinical contact. The more clinical contact we have through you, uh, the better the results can be that we produce. So we can give you tailored advice. Um, it's also important to know what challenges you're having because there are things that we can do to address those or we can discuss solutions. Um, and of course, as Lyle has mentioned, Sometimes we have preliminary results or things that we're working on um, that we can convey to you if we have an open communication line. So 
I think my take home message would be don't be afraid of us. Please contact us. Um, if there's anything that's either not making sense with the result or the result is taking too long or longer than expected um, or anything really, advice on patients in terms of antimicrobial therapy, we are here and we would like to have the opportunity to assist you so we can work together um, and make the most out of this. We also looked at specimens from the perspective of the technologists processing them and heard some really insightful tips from Ms. Yola Tatoba. Yes, okay, obviously I know um, most MMM subscribers are clinicians and everybody knows what they're doing, but I think I'm just going to um, touch again on the, most importantly, the collection of the samples, mm -hmm. especially the leaking samples, because mm. sometimes you get, you see like maybe half of your samples you have to reject because they are leaking. So maybe I would say the tip would be when you're collecting a sample, we don't necessarily need a lot in micro because you're just inoculating on your agar and you're doing your slides. Five mil is more than enough. Correct, collect in this correct container. It's either your sterile container or your tubes or, um, or pass swabs as well. Correct, the correct password for each um, specimen and then close the, the samples tightly so that they don't leak. Yes. Also the labeling of the sample, the barcode, you know that barcode that you put mm -hmm. on, on the container, instead of making it overlap through a lead, just stick it nicely on the specimen container. I think also the information, the patient's information on the request form, because it really does help when, when you get yeah. the correct specimen information correct specimen type correct test sets to be requested otherwise if you don't know just call the lab and find out <clears throat> what's the correct test sets for whatever sure. code you want to request um <clears throat> the correct labeling of the samples outside that as well and uh, yeah i think it, it would be that the correct handling of the samples turnaround time as well the quicker you bring the sample to the lab the better and the quicker we save the patient and um yeah i think it would be that and um if you don't know if you're not sure as a clinician or whoever is collecting just call the lab and find out so we don't have to fight with people <laughs> on the phone because then the doctors will be calling why did you reject sorry and sorry and sorry and you're like that is why there's a common day because you use the incorrect specimen container mm. incorrect test sets which happens a lot and the problem with incorrect test sets, they also affect our outstanding test list. Because mm -hmm. now we have to reject all this incorrect stuff that are being requested unnecessarily. So, yeah, I would say just the correct information, clinical history, patient's details, test sets, and uh, the correct collection of the specimen. The last theme we will cover in this summary episode is infection prevention and control. We kicked off the IPC content with episode three, where Professor Duzay spoke to us about everyday do's and don'ts in IPC. Take a listen to what he says here. Well, let's, let's do the hardline take-home messages. IPC is fundamental uh, to all healthcare practitioners. It's uh, not only part of the ethic of delivering safe healthcare, uh, but it in fact uh, talks to the legal duty to care it is not something that is optional when you have time, but it's, it's really compulsory. It's obligatory. It needs to be done all the time. Um, and because we know that if you consistently and correctly practice hand hygiene, um, 
where you can reduce infections quite dramatically. If you were to choose one single intervention to start off with, please actually start with hand washing. And, and finally, a bit of an admonition. 174 years ago, Semmelweis, who was a Hungarian physician working in a, a Vienna obstetric facility, um, really documented and probably most elegant study um, that hand washing markedly decreased the rates of purple sepsis, um, killing mothers in obstetric wards. Uh, and the bottom line is that you show that implementation of simple hand hygiene techniques markedly reduce this. Um, seeing 174 years have passed and compliance with hand hygiene is in many facilities often anywhere between 10 and 40 percent. In two very important episodes covering decontamination, disinfection and sterilization with Dr. Tina Thomas, Tina talked us through the differences between each of these terms. It's a really way, great way to understand these definitions. Sure. So put simply, sterilization is defined as the process where all of the living microorganisms, including bacterial spores, are inactivated. Disinfection is the process of inactivating living organisms on inanimate surfaces, excluding their spores. There are three levels of disinfection based on the pathogens that are inactivated at each level, and we shall be discussing this later on. Decontamination is the removal or neutralization of any harmful substances such as infectious pathogens, radioactive or chemical hazards from an environment, object or person. Another term also worth mentioning is antisepsis, which is the use of chemicals or antiseptics on the skin or mucous membranes to rid them of pathogenic organisms. Hence, the term antisepsis should only be used when referring to an animate surface. Tina also talked us through the concentration of different products needed to eradicate various pathogens in the environment. And we know that this is something that often causes confusion amongst clinicians and nursing staff in the wards. Sure, then I'll try and do so. So with the hypochlorite solution, there are three concentrations to keep in mind, which will cover most healthcare-associated infections. The 500 ppm or parts per million, or the 0.05% hypochlorite solution, which is exactly the same. Is that the same concentration in a different conversion? Absolutely. So 500 ppm is equivalent to 0.05% of hypochlorite solution. Got it. And this offers intermediate level disinfection and will inactivate almost all healthcare associated pathogens. And what I mean by these are the escape pathogens. Um, this concentration is therefore used in most of our institutions for environmental cleaning. However, for specific pathogens, a higher concentration of the hypochlorite solution will be required, such as for inactivation of C. auris or Candida auris, 1,000 ppm or 0.1% is required. Mm -hmm. And for Clostridium difficile, 5,000 ppm or 0.5% of hypochlorite solution is required. The higher concentration of the solution in Clostridium difficile is required to kill off the spores. 
With regards to the no-touch methods, the UVC radiation is mutagenic to most microorganisms at wavelengths of 250 to 280 nanometers and consequently kills them. The aerosolized or vaporized hydrogen peroxide concentrations range between 3 to 30% for um, the different methods. However, for both no-touch methodologies, it is important to look at the commercial product validation studies to assess the pathogens that were inactivated to understand their levels of disinfection. So that was an absolute whirlwind of a tour through some of our episodes in the past year. And in the next episode, we're going to cover a summary of episodes related to diagnostics, specific pathogens, antimicrobials, and then we'll end off with our favorite thing to do on Microbe Mail, which is myth busting. Until then, remember to sign up, follow, like, share, and keep your real germs to yourself, please. That's it from me, Vin. See you again soon with more Contagious Mail. Yeah,